we are repentant. We are grateful. We are redeemed. We are prayerful. We are First Baptist Church.
Well, uh, it is, uh, I, don't, I don't know if you always feel the same way I do, um, but it really is a joy to worship together. Um, it's a joy to sing songs with one another, and some of my best days of, of loving God happen when I'm around brothers and sisters in Christ like this where we get to sing together and be reminded of who God is and what he's done. And it just stirs things up. And then I can look to my left and to my right and say, gosh, we're in this together. And uh, so it's really always a joy to worship with you. um, And I hope you feel the same way. Um, If you don't feel the same way, would you pray that God changes that? Um, God put us together and commands that we gather together for a reason, for a purpose to stir us up to love him and love one another more. If you are new with us today, my name is Danny Panter. I'm one of the associate pastors on staff here in this church family, and I am so happy that you're here with us. And we don't take it for granted um, that you're walking into a new space with a lot of new faces. And so thank you so much for coming. You have entered into Logos. Logos is our band-led worship gathering here at the First Baptist uh, Church and First Baptist family, and um, logos just means word in Greek, and it really kind of centers for us our most treasured values. That is, we believe Jesus, who is the word, and we long to listen to him um, and follow him in all of life, and we hope that you see that in us and long for that more in your own life. We, we hope that you have a sense of, wow, this is a, this is a pretty casual place. I can come in here um, and uh, just be myself, and also we hope that you get a sense of this is kind of an ongoing conversation um, that we have with God about God to one another. If you are new here, would you honor us by uh, picking up the card in front of you? It should be right in the chair in front of you and filling it out. This is our way to begin that relationship with you and, and helping you connect hear more and more. At the close of our time together, you simply can either put it in, well, offering plates already come by, um, but at the close of our time, you can exit. When you go out those doors, you can kind of put it on the right um, on that counter. We call it the Ask Me booth, um, or you can hand it to someone there, but we want to have a record of your time with us so that we can begin a relationship with you. Let's stand together. We're going to read Matthew Chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. You may be seated. So we are in week 12 of our series on the Ten Commandments, and we have wrapped up the last of the ten, and now we find ourselves looking at what is called the the greatest commandment. Um, Jesus called it the greatest commandment and the first commandment, not necessarily in terms of chronology when it was delivered to his people, but it's first in importance of greatest priority. And this lawyer seeking to trip him up, um, man, uh, Jesus came back with this greatest, greatest commandment, which is absolutely true. And so that's where we find ourselves today is in the greatest commandment and then the second greatest commandment. Several years ago, I had the privilege of traveling to Ethiopia on a trip with some dear friends of mine from this church family. We were uh, digging wells and training pastors. I had the privilege of training pastors while I watched guys really work hard to dig wells. Um, It was awesome. Um, But what was so incredible for me was not only the experience of loving and serving in that way, but in the evenings, we were out in the middle of nowhere, in the evenings, there were no other lights save the stars in the sky. And I would go out, and that first night, um, I went out and I looked up into the night sky, and I'm not kidding, it was like a blanket of stars. You could see the Milky Way, uh, and it was, there was not a place where there wasn't a blinking star. It was incredible, and it literally had me in awe. I was marveling at these stars. I, I couldn't stop looking, and every evening, I would go back out and just spend several minutes just looking and marveling at these stars. And, and it wouldn't really stop there. In my own imagination, I would just imagine those tiny little blinking stars are ginormous. And if I even came within tens of thousands of miles to any one of those stars, I'd be wiped away, just burned up to a crisp. And so there was this this awe, this wonder, this marveling of this blanket in the sky and this really appropriate fear of these stars that God has made. That's the kind of fear that God speaks to in Deuteronomy chapter 6 before he gets to the greatest commandment. Let me read that for you. Let me read that for you. This is Deuteronomy chapter 6. I'm going to spend a lot of time in this text. He says this in verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. This is Moses speaking. He just got through reminding him of the Ten Commandments. That you may do them in the land in which, to which you are going over to possess it. Verse 2. That you may fear the Lord your God. You and your son and your son's son. That's generation after generation after generation. That you may fear the Lord your God by keeping all of his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. Now remember, I told you that God gave the commandments, ushered them into this new covenant relationship. 
I will make you my treasure. I'm choosing you out of all the other nations to make you my treasure. I will be your God. You will be my people, and he says, so that your days can be long in the land. God longs to bless his people, and he says, fear me, fear the Lord. But not the kind of fear that moves us to flee from his presence, but the kind of fear that creates a longing to obey his commands. Kind of like me and the stars in Ethiopia, seeing the bigness and beauty and glory of the stars, being in awe, marveling at these beautiful things, God's creation. That's the kind of fear that God is calling his people to. Do you marvel at me in such a way that also is associated with appropriate fear, knowing who I am. And so when we get to verse 5 and we read the word love, love the Lord your God, that word love serves to further define that word fear. Fear. Awe. The kind of awe or fear that leads to complete and total devotion to God. So remember with me, God told Moses, I heard the cry of my people. Moses goes to Pharaoh, but Pharaoh refuses to release them. One plague, two plague, three plagues, four, five, six, seven, eight, Nine, ten, the people of Israel see all of the plagues. The first of them could have been dismissed for somebody else, some concoction of some kind. But the further you get along the plagues, they knew. They knew God was, the God that was speaking to Moses was up to something incredible. They were in awe of this God. And they walked out of Egypt and came to the Red Sea and they thought they were Goners. They thought they were done because the army was behind them. What does this incredible God do? The creator of the heavens and the earth, he opens the Red Sea and they walk past the Red Sea and they go on the other side of it and they're in the desert and the army of Egypt has been destroyed. God has protected them once again in awe of this God, this pillar of fire and pillar of smoke leading them every step of the way. And they come to the mount the mountain where God begins to speak to Moses and the mountain is covered with smoke and thunder and lightning and they hear the voice of the Lord. They are in awe of this God. That's why in verse four, before we get to the greatest commandment, he says, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You know who I am. You've seen me rescue you out of Egypt. You saw me at the Red Sea. You saw me in the pillar and the fire. You have been in awe of me. You can't shake it. In fact, they were so in awe of God. When it came to the mountain, they reckoned correctly. They said, Moses, you go up there and speak on our behalf. Tell him that we will follow him. But, but if we get close to God, we know we will surely die. There is an appropriate sense of awe and wonder and marvel that we will follow this God and an appropriate sense of fear that he is much bigger, holier than they are. And God says, you are in awe of me, now I say, love me. Love me. In the economy of God, 
He says, fear me, be in awe of me because of who I am. I am one. There is no one else like me. I, there is no other God like me. There's no one else that can do the things that I can do. And I have made you my treasure. Be in awe of me and love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is a command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And let's be honest, this kind of command often offends our American sensibilities. I mean, who has the right to command you to love anybody? But that's not the kind of command that is going on here. This kind of command states the obvious. There is no other reasonable response other than complete and total devotion, total awe of this God. There's no other, other appropriate response. And the kind of awe or devotion that God is calling us to is heart, soul, might, and mind, the whole person. God says, all of you should be completely devoted to me, not just part of you. Your affections, what you desire, your mind, what you think on, your strength, all your efforts and what you do should be mine. I'm worthy of it. To love God is an appropriate response because of all the goodness that he is and his person and all the good that he does to us. We are to love him. That word love, that word love may soften the word fear, but it ups the ante, doesn't it? It raises the bar of expectation and how we're commanded to relate to God. Be in awe of him, be in awe of me, but love me. All of who you are, devote yourself to me. And this word love also has been so parsed out, even in our own culture, or dissected so much, it, it has kind of become confusing. Is love a decision? Is love duty? Is it commitment? Is it a feeling? Which is it? Which is it? I just want to spend a few moments talking about, yes, God calls us to be in awe of him and to respond in full devotion and love him. And I want us to look and understand what he means by that word love. God will not allow us, first, God will not allow us to reduce love to a calculated resolve our discipline, our duty, our commitment. Won't allow it. Won't allow it at all. Uh, he won't allow us to have a kind of love that is absent or disconnected from our affections, how we feel in our heart. That word heart speaks to our, how we feel, what we desire. And love certainly is more than delighting in God, and love is certainly more than affection or emotion or feeling, but it certainly isn't less certainly isn't less. That's why we have verses like Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord. Psalm 102, serve the Lord with gladness. Not dutifully, but serve the Lord with gladness. Uh, or Philippians 4, 4, we know this one, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And I don't think Paul was referring to this kind of ho-hum, glum, I'm really happy about God. No, I think he's speaking to the very heart of who we are, that you should long for God, not just be in awe of him or fear of him, but there should be a desire and longing for who God is that comes out of the very center core of our emotional being, delighting in, delighting in. Deuteronomy 28, 47 through 48, 
because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of all the abundance that he's given you. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies. God gives a warning to his people. Unless you serve with gladness and joy, it's not just this zealous commitment or a dutiful response to God or discipline that God longs for. Those are all well and good, and he calls for those things. But he says, no, it's, it's not just that. I, I'm worthy of your affections. I'm worthy of your joy, your desire. Desire me. Delight yourself in me. I get it. Our emotions can't always be trusted. They're fleeting. But they're not fleeting because they're less important or less valuable. They're fleeting because we're sinful, corrupt human beings. Our emotions are corrupt emotions. They don't always arrive when they should. And so just because that might be true and we can say check your emotions doesn't mean that your emotional response is less significant than your obedient response to God. In fact, you are disobedient to God if you don't come to him with joy and gladness. It's a command. Serve the Lord with gladness. So it's, they're not less than. They may be broken and corrupt. We struggle to delight in God or, de- or our delight rises and falls, not because it's of lesser value, but because simply we're sinful people. And let me also add that the kind of emotions or desires that I'm talking about aren't truthless. Sometimes we can get the impression when people talk about emotions, we can come to the impression that, that our emotions are without truth. They're kind of wishy-washy or uh, th- th- there's nothing backing them up, but there's nothing that supported that. That's not supported in Scripture. There's, there's a reason why verse 4 comes before verse 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Know me and all of who I am. I'm not like the other little gods that you've worshipped. I am the God, the only God, and I have rescued you out of Egypt. The kind of love and affection that God calls us to comes out of a deep-rooted sense of who God is and what he's done. God says, love me because you know me now. You've been in awe of me. You've seen what I'm capable of, and I have made you my people. And he says the same thing to us. Our emotional response to God is not truthless. It fills to the brim and overflowing with truth. Or it should. It should. And while love is not less than delight in God, nor is it less than obedience to God. These are two sides of the same coin. God says, love me with your heart in all that it is, desire me, long for me, delight in me, find joy in me, be glad in me. But he also says, love me with all of your might and all of your soul, our obedience and devotion to do what God calls us to do, to act. They're both a part of the same. Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will owe Obey me, or John says, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. 
It's 1 John 2, 3 through 5. We're called to love him with our heart and obey him. They're, they're both sides of the same coin. Our delight and our obedience both lean into and flow out of one another. Obedience flows out of delight, right? I'm in awe of God. My desire is for him. I'm glad in him. And out of that comes a heart that's willing to listen and obey God. And delight also flows out of obedience. Even when our emotional response to God might wane, we are committed to do what God asks us to do. And what we discover sometimes, oftentimes, is that when we're committed to do what he asks, the appropriate emotional response will follow. They both come in and out of one another. Not one's greater than the other, but both are commanded of the Lord. Love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Obey me, and may your heart long for me. This is why marriage serves as one of the best metaphors for God's relationship with his church, his love for her and the church's love and devotion to Christ. It's right for a husband to delight in his wife and delight in serving her. And it is right to expect his wife to delight in him. They both go together and both must be pursued at all costs. Can you imagine a wife who says, Coming into marriage, you know, I know his feelings, his heart for me is going to fade, but as long as he just serves me, I'll be fine. I mean, that's really all that I'm, I'm okay with as long as he serves me. I don't need, he doesn't have to like me or enjoy being around me. That's silly. We would never think that a marriage like that is a healthy marriage, and it's not. We would say, no. A husband and wife must constantly pursue a heart that delights to be with one another and a heart that delights to serve one another. And when either one of those are out of whack, they've got to figure out how do we, how do we get those back to center? And that's what God calls from us too, to love the Lord your God with all of your affection and all of your might to follow him and do what he's asked you to do. A joyless marriage is not as it should be, nor is a serviceless marriage. Something is off. Love is out of kilter. What makes it a covenant is the constant pursuit of love for one another in those two ways. And that's true not only of marriage, but certainly our covenant relationship with God, to love him, delight in him, to obey in him. Lastly, um, we know the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus would say that all of the law is fulfilled between the two. I would go on uh, and, and say also that loving God um, or loving your neighbor flows out of loving God. John would say if you hate your brother or your neighbor, it's impossible for you to know God for God is love. First John 4, 10 through 12 Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made known to us, or manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might have life through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God loved us first. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God. This is key here. No one has ever seen God. 
If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. That last verse, John is pointing to that very important principle. That when we abide in God, when we love God and experience the love of God through our heart and what we do, that love begins to overflow into the lives of other people. And he says, um, no one has ever seen God, right? No one has ever seen God. But when the love of God is perfected in you, and that overflows into loving other people, people begin to see the love of God in that overflow. That's what John is saying. That's why he can say, if you hate your brother, you're a liar. You don't know God. Because when you know God, and you abide in God, and he abides in you, and you love God, and you seek to obey God, and, and the longings of your heart are for God, and you fight for that in your life, then, that, then that, the love of God begins to spring out into your life, into other people, your wife, your coworker. Or here's another way of saying it. You can't be a jerk to your wife, or your coworker, or your child, at least not for long, and know God and love God. Right? You can't tell me, oh, I know God and not love your neighbor. That's what John is saying, because God is love. And if you know God, then his love is springing out of your life, and people can see God in you and through you because of love that's coming out of you towards your neighbor. Huge red flag, isn't it? If we don't love our neighbor, then it's a strong indication that we love all the wrong things, idolatry. It means we don't love God. Don't love God. God says, know me, be in awe of me, marvel in me, adore me, love me, delight in me, obey me, serve me, and as I have loved you, it can't help but overflow into love towards others. Verse six of Deuteronomy. Verse six in Deuteronomy. God says this, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. There's a, a beautiful thing that happens when we fear God the way that we ought to be in awe of him, when we love God in all the ways that we ought, our heart, soul, mind, and strength. God says, my word will begin to take shape in your heart. I will, I will put it in your heart. Jesus said it like this in John 15, 7 through 11. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, that's Deuteronomy 6. God says, I will put my words in your heart. And Jesus is saying the same thing. If you rest in me, if you receive me, if, you res if I reside in you and you reside in me, then my words will be in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Rest, receive, make my love your residence. If you keep my commands, you will, commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I know there's a lot going on there. I know there's a lot going on. What does Jesus mean by that? Um, some of you know what this is in the room. This is a talit um, in Hebrew, and uh, in 
English, we would just call it a prayer shawl. Now, what we know about Jesus is uh, Jesus, every day of his life, when he became a man, he would wear this under his robe. Um, this is a significant symbol in um, the ancient Jewish culture, in the first century Jewish culture. You know, they, the way they used it differed over the generations, but in Jesus' day, they would wear it every single day. It's um, incredible symbolism going on here. You notice um, these are tassels in Hebrew. Uh, they're called tzitzit. Um, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, but we know that the numerical value of that word is 600. Um, and then when you add up the tassels themselves, it's 613, which is how many commandments have been given to his people. So every day of his life in his public ministry, Jesus wore this over his shoulder. Now, if they were in synagogue, if they were in a prayer service, um, the, at the appropriate time during a prayer service, the Torah, or the, the, the books of the law, would be processed uh, down towards the front of the gathering. And if you were close enough, you would take a tassel, and in honor of the commandments of the Lord, you would try to touch the Torah. Now, here's what's really cool. Um, we know that Jesus wore this because all the places in the New Testament where it says um, they tried to touch the hem of his garment, this is what they're talking about. That lady who was healed from bleeding for 12 years, this is what she touched. Um, it wasn't some magical thing. Uh, she, she had faith in this Jesus, sought to touch this and recognize that he had authority to heal her. But on top of that, um, we know that the practice in the Jewish faith with this prayer shawl um, is that they would, in the morning and the evening, recite together the Shema. And the Shema is verse, verses 4 and 5. Actually, it's a lot longer than that. They, they recite it much longer. But hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. And at certain times, they would drape this over there, especially when they were reading the Torah. They would drape this over when they would read the scripture and sometimes even when they would recite that verse, they would cover their head. Jesus said, abide in me as I have abided in my Father. This is what he means. The talit was a physical reminder of the command to give total devotion all of who you are, your heart, your affections, your mind, to, the, to your Father, creator of the heavens and the earth, and to sit under his words and walk with him in obedience. My question for us is, is uh, we, don't, we don't carry around talits, nor is it a command to do that. But is that true of us? Is it true of us? Does our heart belong to the Lord? Are we fighting for that? When our emotions wax and wane, are we listening to God and fighting to obey him? Are we, is, does our might belong to him? Are we under him? 
Do we love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Let's pray. Father God of glory and grace, we're so grateful for you, um, for your word, for your commandment to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Lord, convict us. Teach us to fight the fight of faith. Um, Lord, help us to walk with you, to love you, and to obey you in all of life, with all of who we are. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen.
First Baptist Church has been broadcasting its services of new life and historic faith for 46 years. We would like to ask that you continue to pray with us for this ministry and also for your financial support so that we can continue this ministry for years to come. Thank you.